0: We'll be looking at page 8 and the second of seven issues we're going to consider in this series, the title of which is on the front cover and on the screen behind me, God's Views of the News. Before we get into today's issue, I just want to call your attention to some things that are coming up over the next few weeks. And those are listed on the back of the notebook. So I encourage you to just take a look at that and note some things that are coming up. Wednesday, every Wednesday, we have our midweek program. It meets at Patrick Henry Middle School. That is on Hall Road about a mile from here, 7 o'clock. And we have kids program, teen program, and adult program, and nursery toddler as well. So every age group is covered. And if you're not participating in that, I encourage you to do so. We just started a new semester of the Adult uh, uh, Community Institute. And so you would be starting just a few weeks in. You haven't missed too much. So this would be a good time to join in. That's this Wednesday. This coming Saturday, uh, we have a bowling event, family bowling event for everybody at the Woodhaven Lanes at uh, Van Horn and Allen Roads. And that's going to be this Saturday, but I think the time on the back cover is is wrong because we did that a long time ago, and the bowling alley changed it last week. So the time is 1.30, 1.30 to 3.30. You can show up as early as 1, and one uh, thirty to... 3.30 will be the bowling event. and You're all invited to come. It's a full family uh, event. And then on February the 20th, Saturday the 20th, you see listed there the newcomer's brunch. That's brunch at our house. And it's for those who are new to our church. You may have been coming for a while but have never gone to one of the brunches, so consider yourself a newcomer if you've never been to one of the brunches. And we really would like to have you come. We always enjoy those. It is strictly for us to meet you and you us in just an informal setting. I don't have a a program of anything I go through. Uh, It is just brunch and and a good time uh, for a couple of hours, 10 to about noon. We'd love to have you. If you would like to come, then let my wife know or let me know. uh, Today would be great. We try to make a list of who all's coming so we know how much uh, food to make. So that's on Saturday the 20th. And then after that, down at the bottom you see there, March the 14th, Sunday, March the 14th, is our next baptism. And we will have baptism at 11 o'clock on that Sunday morning, and then we always have a celebration dinner following that. So look forward to that, and particularly those of you who have not been baptized. It is something that Jesus says that all who claim to follow him are to do. And it's a command of Jesus. It's not an optional. It is something he says to do. And when he says baptism, the the word literally means to dip, to immerse. So, if you've never been dunked in water for baptism, then you actually haven't been baptized. So, if you say, I was already baptized when I was a a baby, you know, and so on. One, you weren't a believer at that time because babies can't do that. And secondly, the mode of baptism in scripture is uh, immersion. That's what the word actually means. So, if that hasn't happened with you, it needs to. And I would like for you to see me then because it's our privilege to engage in helping people in that first step of obedience of baptism. That'll be March the 14th, okay? Today we're going to consider the second of the seven issues as part of this series, God's Views of the News. Top of page 8, you see that today's issue is evolution. We have 40 minutes, and we have a good bit to cover. And as I mentioned last week, I have the text for you in these notes, uh, so I don't read the notes. They're there for you to read. I simply call your attention to particular sections of the notes, and then I do my best to explain what's there and give some illustrative material. So that's what we'll do uh, again today as well. Page number 8, the second paragraph, you see it says, Darwin's theory of evolution made headlines in 1925 with the famous or infamous Scopes Monkey Trial, as it's so called in Dayton, Tennessee. Some of you may be familiar with that, but I just want to make sure that everyone reads that and knows what that's about because it is an incident that has cemented in the minds of many a particular view of those who are Bible believers for the decades since, nearly almost 100 years now. And that view that folks have of those of us who believe the Bible to be true in all that it affirms is a negative view. And much of it comes from the Scopes Monkey Trial or incidents like it. Now, why? Why is there this negative view of those who believe the Bible that came out of this event? Well, the event was, as it says, in Dayton, Tennessee. And it was a a case in which a biology teacher, John Scopes, was prosecuted for teaching evolution. At the time, in the state of Tennessee, as in other states, it was against the law to teach evolution. Things have changed a bit. Now it's against the law to teach creation, but it was against the law to teach evolution back then. He did and uh, was was prosecuted. And it made headlines nationwide because the two uh, combatants in that case were on the prosecution side, William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan uh, was from Dayton, Tennessee, and you may not know that name, but back then he was a well-known, very well-known politician. He had been Secretary of State, Uh, He had run for president three times, had been the uh, nominee uh, for president uh, three times, and uh, came close to to winning. He gave in 1896 at the Democratic National Convention a speech at that convention that's still considered a classic political speech. It's called the Cross of Gold speech, and you could Google that, and you would uh, find information about it. So he was a well-known politician, but he was also a fundamentalist uh, Bible believer. And so he took on the case as the prosecutor. Well, that gave it, that gave it uh, newsworthiness in itself. But to add to it, the American Civil Liberties Union decided to finance sending a Chicago lawyer down to Dayton, Tennessee, named Clarence Darrow. And so it's Clarence Darrow versus William Jennings Bryan. And so it made headlines. And the press descended on this little town of Dayton, Tennessee, uh, for about a week in, in 1925. And writing back home, particularly writing back home to the north, Uh, These uh, folk from the north uh, did not much care for the hicks uh, as they saw it and the rednecks as they saw it in Dayton, Tennessee. And you could see it in the writing. Uh, If you ever wanted to go back and look up archives of H.L. Mencken, who wrote for the Baltimore Evening Sun, he went down to Dayton, Tennessee, and he wrote about the uh, Scopes Monkey Trial. And the stuff he wrote about Bible believers was not flattering at all. So it's cemented in the minds of many people that these are backwoods, ignoramuses kind of folk. And that view of people like me, uh, I won't include you, but people like me, has stuck for a long, a long time. So it's famous or infamous for, for that reason. And unbeknownst to a lot of people, uh, actually, William Jennings Bryan won that case. The guy did lose uh, scopes, and uh, he was found guilty. Uh, But in the press and in the larger war, Brian and his cohorts lost. There was a uh, theatrical play and then later a movie called Inherit the Wind. We have that for you in that paragraph that was made about this. And uh, I have an article, you could look this up as well, in a journal called First First Things. And if you were to look up First Things and Inherit the Wind, you get a long story about that play and that movie and how biased it is against those who, who believe the Bible. But it it didn't help our reputation, my reputation, uh, the trial itself, and the afterma- aftermath of the trial as well. So that's what that is is about. I hope to demonstrate that you don't have to be a backwoods ignoramus to believe that what we see in the natural world came into existence recently and suddenly as opposed to over a long period of time and, and uh, gradually. But uh, we'll see that as we go. What is the basic nature of the debate on page 8? At its heart, the creation-evolution debate involves two opposing worldviews, those of naturalism and supernaturalism. What's a worldview? A worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting All of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life in the world. Everyone has a worldview. Most people do not consciously adopt their worldview. They simply absorb it from their upbringing or those around them. But nonetheless, however acquired, we all have lenses through which we see the world. And there are lenses then through which we interpret the data that science has to to assimilate and deal with, and that's going to be based, as we'll see, on one's worldview. But that's what a worldview is, a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality, a framework through which someone makes sense of all that they are confronted with, all of the data of life and the the world. And every worldview has a set of commitments that limit the explanations that can be given for a particular phenomenon. So if you have this set of lenses and you see something that doesn't fit, your worldview will reject it. You say, but scientists don't operate that way. Think again. So here is uh, here is uh, Richard Dawkins, who's an uh, uh, evolutionary philosopher. He's written the book The Blind Watchmaker. He's one of a handful of atheists over the last 10 years that have become very militant in their atheism. And you have uh, probably seen some of these authors interviewed recently, uh, people like Christopher Hitchens, but uh, Richard Dawkins is, is one of them. And here's what Dawkins said. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now he goes on, and the title of the book is The Blind Watchmaker, which suggests to you that even though that's the appearance, that's what it looks like, that's not the reality. That's not the deal. Now, why is what it looks like not what is real? Because it doesn't fit the worldview. And so biology is as he says, the study of complicated things, they give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, but then as you go through the book, he goes on to try to explain why that can't be. And the reason it can't be is because he begins with a set of spectacles through which he sees the data, as we all do. We all do. So that's not just something he does. We just need to recognize that he does it. But he's not the only one, of course. Francis Crick, who won the Nobel Prize for Science for his part in discovering DNA... Uh, Francis Crick says this, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Now, why do they constantly have to keep that in mind? Because for all the world, when you look at it, it looks like it was designed, but you've got to keep in mind that that can't be true. And the reason that can't be true is because you've got the glasses through which you're looking at it, and you always got to remember you've got the glasses, and make sure that you don't defy what the glasses Uh, filter. So with that, that last sentence, these statements betray the fact that evolution is necessitated by philosophical naturalism. That's the first worldview. The foundation of the worldview is without question philosophical and religious. I'll just quickly say this, that it is false, then a false dichotomy to say that on the one hand, those who believe in recent sudden uh, appearance of what we see is religious a religious commitment, but evolution is not. That is a false dichotomy. And it's unfortunate that that dichotomy is often made because what happens then is if you deign to teach recent sudden appearance, then it is outlawed because it's a violation of what? Separation of church and state. Now, I'll just quickly say a few things about that. One. Just like last week, the right to privacy is not something found in the Constitution, but as our friend Harry Blackman said in the decision in 1973, the right to privacy is not in the Constitution, but he said it is in penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. You all remember that from last week, okay? Well, you also will not find the phrase separation of church and state in the Constitution either. Uh, What you do find is the First Amendment, which uh, does not uh, uh, prohibit the free exercise uh, of religion um, for any uh, U.S. citizen. And so Congress shall make no law, the First Amendment says, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's what it says. From that has come what we call the separation of church and state. And that's an unfortunate phrase because... It simply has the things that are outlawed as theistic stuff. Now, do you know what I mean when I say theistic stuff? Stuff that involves God, church, Bible, presumably creation, prayer. Those kinds of things are on the God side of the slate, and so those are a violation of the separation of church and state. But see, what's violate what is what is prohibited in the Constitution is not is not church or theistic stuff, it's religious stuff. And hear this, religious stuff is not necessarily theistic. Did you know that? That atheists have religious commitments, do they not? They're absolutely rabid about their commitments. These guys could be preachers. If you ever hear Christopher Hitchens and here's a debate for you to look up, Christopher Hitchens versus Douglas Wilson. You can Google all this stuff. Christopher Hitchens versus Douglas Wilson. They had a five-part debate online. And Douglas Wilson kills Christopher Hitchens in this debate. But one of the things he accuses him of, of is being a preacher. Because you've got a religion that you are propounding. And a key tenant of that religion is naturalism, which evolution is based on. So I just want you to think about that. That it is not just recent, sudden appearance of what we see that falls into the religious category. So does evolution based on naturalism. The second worldview is supernaturalism, founded on the assumption that the material world is not all there is or all that can be known. Therefore explanations need not be limited to natural phenomena. Now uh, if you if you ever wanted to prove that to someone, it's it's fairly easy to do that that what we can see and test is not all there is. Uh, And that was done in another debate uh, between atheist Gordon Stein and uh, a fellow named Greg Bonson, a Christian apologist. apologist means apolog- Apologetics means to defend the faith. Greg Bonson versus Gordon Stein. And in that debate, Greg Bonson, uh, before an audience at the uh, University of Southern California, embarrassed Gordon Stein greatly by uh, asking him to prove where the laws of logic that Stein claimed he would use to show that there is no God. There is no God, and I can show this because of the laws of logic. And the Christian's question was, where did the laws of logic come from? Can you see them? Can you grab them? Can you touch them? And, of course, you cannot. You have to presuppose them, don't you? Something that you can't see. You have to presuppose them to make the very argument. And so this notion that there is more to the world than what you, more than matter, more than what you can perceive with your senses, is not easy to, is not difficult to prove at all. Bottom of that page, one worldview says only naturalistic explanations are valid in science. The other allows for supernatural explanations. Both of these positions have the nature of a pre-commitment or a presupposition. We cannot prove them. You can't prove the starting point. You can't prove that naturalism is all there is. You can't. And you can't prove your starting point of supernaturalism. You begin with that presupposition, and then you filter what you see through that. Both sides do that at all times. Therefore, the debate is not primarily about evidence, but it's about one's interpretation of the evidence. And let's see that, page 9. If someone asks me, do you believe in evolution? My answer is yes. You say, I didn't know that before I joined this church. You should have told me But the answer is yes, if we understand what's meant by that, because there are two kinds of evolution. There's microevolution and macroevolution. Micro means small. Macro means big. If you ask me, do I believe in microevolution, the answer is yes. Small evolution, meaning that changes occur under different environmental conditions. Or mutations occur. Things mutate, they change. That's what mutate means. They change under different conditions, and you can show that in a a laboratory. And scientists have done that, and they've done it using primarily the poor, hapless fruit fly. So the fruit fly, you stick it in conditions where you bombard it with radiation, and you watch. It will evolve. It will mutate. Things will change. You bombard it with enough radiation, and it becomes a weird, a really weird-looking fruit fly might grow another head, another leg, some wings, that is one ugly fruit fly. But here's the key point. That's micro, it has nothing, zero to do with macro evolution. Because everything it grows and sprouts, every last thing, is all fruit fly stuff. It's not bat stuff. It's not any other thing stuff. It's fruit fly. And in order to get... Macro evolution, you've got to go from one to something else. Which becomes impossible to do, it turns out. As we'll see when we get to page 13. It's impossible to go from the one to the other. That is why the transitional forms are sometimes called the missing link. Why are they called the missing link? Because they're missing. And guess what? They're still missing. And the drawing that you have in your biology book is a drawing. It's a drawing of what we think it would look like if we found the stuff. But the stuff is missing. We're still looking. We are sure we will find it because of our pre-commitment. We know it's there. We just haven't located it as yet. So microevolution happens. Mutations occur, changes occur under different environmental conditions. That's not a problem. The problem becomes when you extrapolate, I just like that word, extrapolate, from micro to macro, when you go from amoeba to man, as it's sometimes called. So one can see, top of page 9, the debate is not primarily about the evidence when he considers the distinction between these micro-macro. Darwin's theory is macro, in that it sees the process of natural selection as the explanation for the evolution of one species to another. Yet, one can, as creationists do, recognize micro can and does occur without accepting macro. For instance, it's true that slight mutations take place but notice within their kind. However, last sentence, it's an entirely different thing to suggest that this evidence should be interpreted as the explanation for the origin of species, title of Darwin's book. So it's one distinction that you need to make. Do you believe in evolution? Yes, the micro type, not the macrotype. The other distinction is operation science and origin science. They're actually two different, and this is really important, two different kinds of science. And the kind of science that we're familiar with is most often in the operation science category. Operation meaning that you can look at and observe how something operates, how it works, thus operation science. And you can, in a laboratory, watch what happens, watch a phenomenon taking place. And operation science adheres to what we know as the scientific method. The scientific method begins, you guys remember this from school, right? It begins with observation. You observe a phenomenon taking place. And then based on watching that, you do experiments with it, and you develop a theory. And if a theory is confirmed over and over, it becomes a a scientific law. But it all begins with observation. But here's the problem with origins. They only happen, you know, it only originates, thus the word, origin. You can't repeat it. It originated one time. It's the original. The first, you can't observe it taking place. It happened. So you don't have now, in this case, operation science that you can observe it taking place. You have a different kind of science. You've got origin science. And origin science, by its very nature, does not submit to the scientific method, particularly observation. So it's a different kind of science. What kind? I haven't mentioned in the paragraph. It's forensic. Forensic science. Still science, but it's a different kind. It's forensic. And you're familiar with forensic science. If you're old like me, then you remember the TV show Quincy, and he was a medical examiner. And I'm sure there are current TV shows that have medical examiners. I just don't, I'm not up on my current TV shows. But what's a medical examiner do? You know, when a when a body is, is taken into the, the county morgue, it's the medical examiner who looks at the body, does an autopsy on the body to try to figure out what happened. They're engaging in forensic science because they are they can't reproduce. They're <laughs> this guy got shot in the head. Come here, I want to reproduce that on you. I'm not going to do that. A guy got shot, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take what I have in the present to try to determine what happened in the past because I can't observe the thing actually happening. And so they go through all kinds of very legitimate exercises to determine entry wound and exit wound and caliber of gun and all kinds of stuff. But it's all based on what they see in the present. And now... They make determinations about what happened in the past. And those are interpretive, right? That's why they argue about them in court. Well, couldn't it have been from a different angle? And how do you know that the, forgive me for being gross, but the blood splatter means, you know, that it had to come from this side of the room and and all of that stuff. And they argue about it because you have to interpret it. And you're going to interpret it through a particular lens, And so there is operation science and there's origin science. And origin science, by its very nature, does not adhere to the scientific method, but it is still science. It's a different type. It is forensic science. Notice the quotation from a recommendation to the Association of Physical Anthropology concerning creation. In any confrontation, you should be prepared to show that evolution is scientific, not that it's correct. One need not discuss fossils, intermediate forms, or probabilities of mutation. These are incidental. The question is, what is science? What is religion? Therefore, if you must confront the creationists, we suggest you discuss the nature of science, the kind of knowledge it can provide and cannot provide. Well, I'm simply telling you, you should be happy to engage in that debate. Just make sure that we understand what kinds of science we're talking about. Okay? And then if you look at page 10 then there is evidence then forensic evidence for a recent sudden appearance of matter creation and so we have recent and then you've got a few pages that go to document the recent piece of it and I'll let you read that when you can't fall asleep sometime those two and a half pages or so But it's simply documenting that there are a number of dating methods and other uh, ways of interpreting the data we see that point to not a millions of years for man and billions of years for the earth, but rather a more recent appearance. But most people don't know that even such methods exist because they are ruled out of hand because of what I said earlier about separation of church and state. So I encourage you to to read those. And if you'll turn to page 12. that first full paragraph says that uh, Job Martin lists three major assumptions that are made in order to arrive at dates in the range of billions of years. And so I want you to have those pages to know that there are a number of methods that point to recent appearance, but I also want you to know why it is that the methodology that comes up with billions of years is is off, and it's because it's based on some assumptions. And these are, unfortunately, unspoken assumptions that people like me have to point out and speak. We have to say, this is the assumption. And if your assumption doesn't hold, then your dating method doesn't hold. So here are some of the assumptions. Three. First second line of that first full paragraph, it's assumed that there are no contamination of the samples. In order for this dating method to work, your sample has to remain unaffected by its environment. And remember, this unaltered state must be maintained for billions of years. No lead can sleep seep in or out of our rock or it would throw off our measurement. It requires what scientists call a closed system. In his book Scientific Creationism, Morris argues there are no closed systems outside of the laboratory. A closed system is ideal for analysis but it's non-existent in the real world. That's the first assumption. If that assumption is wrong, then the the dating is wrong. Second assumption, that there are no daughter elements present in the original state of a sample. For example, if God created the rock in question, and prior to this they've talked about a rock, in question, as the Bible teaches, is true for all matter in the universe, how do we know whether he created the rock with lead already in it? In order for this dating system to be accurate, you have to assume that there was a point in the history of that rock in which it possessed no lead. It's at best an unfounded guess. But here's the third one. And that is the rate of decay for radioactive carbon-14 has remained constant over time. And you have to assume that. And if that assumption doesn't hold, then your date doesn't hold. Now, I would argue that that assumption is not a good one that the present rate of decay for radioactive carbon-14 is not what it was a bunch of years ago. Can you prove one way or the other? You, You can't. You weren't there. You don't know what the rate was. But you have to assume that it's remained constant and then extrapolate backwards to find out how old this fossil is. But I would argue that the better assumption is that that rate of decay has not remained constant. And one of the reasons I would do that is because rates in the present, going forward, change all the time, don't they? Just take uh, the experience that I had when I was at the University of Michigan, and I was taking a uh, math class after my science class. So in science class, I was taught, this is how you measure the date of fossils, because it's based on the rate of decay of radioactive carbon-14, and you can scientifically prove how many years old this thing is it's based on the assumption that the rate of decay has remained constant nobody said that it was an unspoken assumption next hour i go to my math class in the math class you know how you do story problems and all that stuff and sadistic people write story problems <laughs> they do i mean you know just think about the dude who makes up these story problems i mean A a colony of bacteria grows at such and such a rate. I can't tell you how many times I've had a colony of bacteria. Why? Who cares about a colony of bacteria? Why can't it be something else? But they just got to get kicks out of that. Anyway. But a colony of bacteria grows at this rate. And you have so many bacteria in this many years. How many bacteria will you have at that rate? And you can do a calculation. At an annual rate of growth of? This is how many we'll have. And population growth have done this for years. If you ever wanted to look up the name Thomas Malthus, M-A-L-T-H-U-S, M-A-L-T-H-U-S, Thomas Malthus in the 1800s, predicted by this time, by the 2000s, that there would not be enough room on Earth for all all the people. Because at the rate of population growth at the time he did it, by the time we get to us, there'll just be too many people. And people do it all the time. In fifty years there's going to be so many people there won't be enough food. Back when I was a kid in the seventies, there were movies like Soylent and Green. Anybody remember that? And this was just, you know, trying to we're trying to come up with artificial food for people to eat. And then here we are, you know, in 2010, and you still got a little bit of elbow room. How'd that happen? Because the rate of population growth does not remain constant. And in the math class, he's given us this, you know, story problem, uh, colony of bacteria, all that. And then the teacher actually says, he says, you know, people always are afraid that in 50 years we're going to run out of room and all that. He says, but they forget that the rate of growth changes. You have a famine or you have wars or that's supposed to make you feel better. Oh, good, we're going to have room because there'll be a famine and a war. But nonetheless, those kinds of things affect the rate Going forward. And I would suggest to you, it's a reasonable assumption, a more reasonable assumption, to assume that there have been environmental factors that have changed the rate of decay going backwards. But it's an assumption either way. Now, the Bible teaches catastrophism. It means there have been catastrophes in the past. Can you guys think of a catastrophe that occurred in the Bible, like a really big one? Which could just affect environmental factors. Seriously, couldn't it? Throw things off. But even if you don't accept the Bible, there have been all kinds of catastrophes that have occurred in the natural world that could affect that most important, but I think wrong, assumption. You look at that fourth paragraph on page 12. For years, scientists have insisted that the layers of rock we find in places like the Grand Canyon could only be formed over eons of time by the slow process of erosion. Creationists are ridiculed for suggesting that a global flood could produce the same results in a matter of days or years. But in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted and rapidly produced up to 600 feet thickness of strata. What geologists were saying would take thousands of years occurred while scientists watched with one natural explosion. So you have recent and then you have sudden appearance or sudden creation. At the bottom of page 12, there's this issue of sudden then. Recent and appearing suddenly as opposed to over a long period of time. I'll encourage you to read those couple of paragraphs. And then on page 13, there is creation. Nearly 150 years after Darwin first proposed his theory, we're witnessing a new scientific revolution. This revolution has taken the form of a movement in the scientific community called intelligent design. The effects of that movement have begun to wash over the public arena. School boards, city councils are bringing the topic to the table. Momentum gained or the evolutionary of the evolutionary position by events such as the infamous Scopes Monkey Trial and years of popular media campaigns is being... At least somewhat reversed as science exposes the philosophy that props up Darwinian evolution. Intelligent design involves a number of species, or pieces, excuse me, of evidence that the universe was created, including the idea, and this is what I wanted you to see irreducible complexity. Because you remember I said earlier the whole missing link thing and the transitions turns out to be impossible? Well, here's what I was referring to irreducible complexity. And in a nutshell, here's what it means. It's actually explained in that paragraph. But what it means is this. In order to get to the complex systems that species need to survive, even subsystems like an eye, that's part of an overall human system, in order to get to that, you have to have enough irreducible minimum kinds of stuff in place for it to survive at all. And millions of years means that the species will not survive long enough to actually make it there. It can. It's got to have certain stuff in place in order for it to survive. Irreducibly complex. It has to have a minimum of complexity in order for it to get from here to there. So one of the reasons you don't find the transitional forms is because they're impossible to happen in the macro way that evolution claims. And irreducible complexity, I'm convinced, has proven that very thing. Further, if Darwin's theory were correct, then the truth is we should be tripping over the number of transitional forms that would be around. He's got all sorts of time, all sorts of changes taking place such that we should be tripping over these transitional forms. But it turns out we can't find any, which is an embarrassment to our friends. Let me give you a few quotes that are not in your notes. This is Darwin. Darwin said, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth must be truly enormous. He's right. If his theory is right, then there would be enormous number of these intermediate transitional varieties. Truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? That's him asking that. Geology, assuredly, does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. That's Darwin. And he would be right about that. But it's not just Darwin. The Field Museum of Natural History, in one of its upper, uh, publications recently said the record of evolution is still unsurprising or still surprisingly jerky their word and ironically we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in darwin's time because some of those that darwin even had turned out to not be correct we have fewer one more stephen j gould harvard biologist now deceased and now correct about this issue Nonetheless, the extreme, he said, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. We just don't have them. We should be tripping over them. Darwin said we should have bunches of them. We don't. And we don't because they can't. And they can't because of irreducible complexity. Now, what are the theological implications of this in our last five minutes? Now, what does it matter? Because sometimes people will say, can you harmonize the Bible with science? And my answer is yes. You can harmonize the Bible with science. You can't harmonize the Bible with evolution. You can harmonize it with science. But remember, there are different kinds of science. But you cannot harmonize it with evolution. And let me tell you why. First, if you're going to believe what the Bible says, the Bible is very clear that God created the world suddenly, quickly, not over a long period of time. Now, why do I say he's very clear? Because he goes out of his way to make it clear in the creation account. Each of the six days of creation ends this way. And the morning and the evening were the first day. And the morning and the evening were the second day. And the morning and the evening were the third day. I mean, if you just wanted to make it clear that we're not talking about a long period of time, you might say something like, the first day is comprised of a morning and an evening. That's one. Two. In your Bible, the first part of your Bible in particular, which was written in Hebrew, every time the word that's translated day, the Hebrew word translated day is Yom, like in Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, every time the Hebrew word Yom is used with a number, like first Yom, second Yom, every time, every time, it's a 24-hour regular day. And the evening and the morning were the first yom. And the second yom. And the third yom. It's consistent throughout the Old Testament. And then in addition to that, you have Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is to remember the Sabbath yom, day, to keep it holy. Here's why. That verse, that passage says this. Here's why I want you to remember that day. For, I'm quoting... In six yoms, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. So, if the Sabbath day is a regular day, it's based upon the fact that God made the world in six of those things. Six of those yoms. So, unless you're resting on the Sabbath, like, for a million years, which I know a lot of us want to do, but the truth is, it's one day. And it's one day related to the other six. So the Bible cannot be harmonized with evolution. It can be harmonized with science. And that's one of the reasons. Here's another reason. Jesus' own confirmation of the creation story. If the creation story is not as normal interpretation would render it, then Jesus' own veracity, his own truthfulness is called into question. This is not in your notes, but Mark chapter 10 and verse 6. Mark 10 and verse 6. Jesus said this. At the beginning of creation, He, God, created them, male and female. So at the beginning of creation, God made Adam and Eve. That's good for us. That fits for us. It doesn't fit for evolution. Because of course, at the beginning, you don't have Adam and Eve. You've got millions of years of stuff going on to produce Adam and Eve, which brings me to the final and perhaps most crucial matter, and that is this. What the Bible teaches about the origin of death, the beginning of death. You see, in evolution, you have to have death going on for millions of years before you have humanity. But in the Bible, the Bible is clear that the origin of death is because of the sin of humanity prior to the sin of humanity, there was no death. If you have death prior to the sin of humanity, you now have misdiagnosed, we have misdiagnosed the problem, and so the solution that the Bible gives is also inaccurate. Namely, the death of Jesus on our behalf. Death came into the world because of sin. Human sin. And so Adam and Eve are told by God, in the day you eat of it, You will die. They die spiritually, and then later they die physically. There was no death prior to that. None. The wages of sin is... What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, can you harmonize the Bible with evolution? No. Can you harmonize the Bible with science? Yeah. But you've got to understand what science is. Okay? Okay. Alright, I encourage you to read the stuff we skipped. It is, uh, just, it is noon. I don't like to brag, but that is really cool. Alright? Thank you all, you're dismissed.